0: Love Talk Radio.
1: And this is Kay Wadriel, and this is Patty Ultram, your host, and we're on the line with Donald Joss, and we're discussing home setting space. Are you there, Don? Hi. I'm here. How are you this Saturday afternoon? Hot. Well, you're in Arizona, so of course it's hot.
0: Yes, yeah. Although I have to say, I remember being a young boy growing up in the area, and I remember playing soccer on days with 120 degrees in the shade.
1: Uh,
0: older Arizona. Well, so
1: you know how week. Just, we just become, you know, wimps. <laughs> <laughs> well, the we actually, get The more wimpy we get.
0: Well, actually, there's more to it than that. I mean, in the days when I grew up in the state, I don't think I recall hearing humidity levels like they are today. Um, the valley has grown so much since the since the 60s and the early 70s, and it's like so much uh, change. It's always about change, and the inevitable um, rush that we get in the course of that change and the things that we always... Uh, I can remember grandparents talking about how things were when they were young and they had to trudge through miles of snow to get to school in the winter. And <laughs> Yeah, right. Come yeah, on.
1: Yeah, like, we were, like <laughs> you realize that. Well, you're but, talking about the weather and the heat in Arizona, and it brought up a, a question I had. Um, and, you know, I, I think the laymen don't quite understand the difference between we, we see the moon – and it looks like the desert, I mean, really, you've got rocks, you've got you know the dirt, you don't have much of anything else, so what my understanding is that she's cold there
0: well, actually, so, what it's are the differences oh, there it's 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 both the moon would more more appropriately be called a wasteland uh in the sense that there is um Little to no life, and that the extremes of temperature um, are just that. These are these are major extremes. In the in in the daylight, uh, you can have temperatures in the range of. And I can never get Celsius and Fahrenheit right, so I'm going to say in, in excess of, of 300 200 or more degrees. I'm going to say Fahrenheit, but I don't think that's right because I think those are supposed to be Celsius, which is even hotter. But in the shadows, that temperature drops that much, potentially minus 200 plus degrees. Now, whether you're looking at it in Fahrenheit or you're looking at it in Celsius, I don't care. Either one of them are extremes.
1: Well, I know in Arizona that if you stand in the shade, uh, I know that if you stand under a tree, actually it's like you know almost 10 degrees less. Yes. Uh, so what you're saying is that that while you're in the sun on the moon is extremely hot, uh, even worse than Arizona. But if you are in the shade, then it's even colder than, you know, up north.
0: Absolutely. In, in, at and night. You know, our, the initial thought one might have on something like that is, is that, okay, so if I step from the sunlight into the shadow on the moon, what am I going to get flash frozen? And the truth is, it's probably not. It might take a whole minute or two before you get flash frozen. Uh, <laughs> because your your body has to radiate what heat it does have or what, or your equipment. It's still got to radiate its heat off. And that actually takes time in a vacuum, which is what we have in the middle. So, and, you know, here's the other thing. You might not even um, – there's a difference in the way the heat feels or the cold feels there because – it's it's not transmitted by air. It's just it's more of, on the heat side, it's it's just literally you're getting heat, it's, it's like standing in front of a heating element, and on the cold side or the dark side, it's just totally the absence of heat. It's not like having ice on your skin. It is literally the absence of heat, so it draws it out of you slowly, but it draws it out. Of you. It's just. I don't know. Well, we've, we've,
1: got, we've got one guest who's uh, listening in. Welcome. And actually a couple of them, and I just want to let you know that uh, anybody who's logged in now, uh, they can call in. You can physically call in with the telephone at uh, guest call number seven one four two four two five one four five. And I know we're talking about uh, mundane things at the moment, but there's a point to it, and that we're chatting about what a uh, common man can do to be a part of this program. Uh, we're talking about the space, face. And uh, you talked about pilgrims and settlers of the American West in uh, your, your program and on your, in your book, surviving, uh, doing, you know, surviving techniques. That's part of it, if I'm looking at it, right? We're even talking about canning. We're talking about, you know, uh, making your own food, you're talking about, you know, uh, even growing your own fish. So are we kind of talking about going backwards and really going down to, you know, where you have to cook and clean and grow your own stuff and you no longer have your own dishwasher, no longer have anything? We're talking about really roughing it.
0: I, I truly believe that. The reality of NASA's efforts in the past and up to current efforts to put tin cans into orbit or onto the surface of the moon or even to Mars or asteroids as time goes on, I do not believe those are sustainable over the long term. And the reality is is that when the, when the settlers came to, when the pilgrims came to America and when the settlers crossed the American plains to the west coast, what they ultimately had to do was to learn to live within the environment they found themselves. Now, there is a lot that we have to take with us just to begin to survive. We're going to have to take a certain foundation of components with us in order to establish our beachhead on that frontier, whether it be orbit, as we've done with the ISS, or whether it be the moon, where we actually have the potential to be able to draw uh, water and various different minerals from the surface of the moon to use as we set up our, our homestead there. But yeah, I think I think in the long term to make it last, we have to go backwards before we can go forwards. Okay. As an as an example, the people who lived in the towns and villages of um Europe at the time lived at a high, much much higher standard than than did the pilgrims when they arrived on the new world. And the same is true of those settlers who left the developed, civilized towns of the American East to cross the the various rivers and plains and things to set up households in a frontier environment. We're looking at a new frontier. And if we don't treat it like a new frontier, that frontier is going to slap us down every time we try to use arrogant science to reestablish a beachhead. Whether it's military, whether it's homesteading, If you don't take advantage of the resources that are there and if you don't anticipate limiting your initial success, you lose. You get spanked.
1: Okay, so you were bringing up uh, the military. Uh, Do you think they are going to have to have some sheriffing going on? I mean, can you see? We're talking about the Miracle West. And what I see is a town that is rough around the edges and... You have uh, people who need law and order, so you have to hire somebody or, or you know, hand a badge to somebody who seems like they are decent enough guy to be able to handle it. Do you see that as, you know, uh, America, a real American frontier type town?
0: I, I think we're going to see before we're going to see American West type towns with a sheriff and a and a, and a judge visiting every once in a while. I, I don't see that happening in the really near near future the capabilities that we have to put people on the surface of our nearest neighbor the moon are still fairly limited in the quantities of people we can send out so it's going to be a while before we reach a quantity of human settlers that are going to require a sheriff per se there will be disputes and in the early stages disputes are usually handled either among the people that are there or somebody dies I mean, that's just the way it is on a frontier. You either resolve the dispute or somebody dies, either out of choice or out of accident or out of anger or, you know, just stupid stuff. That's what happens on the frontier. Or somebody gets careless and forgets to seal the airlock properly and these are things that are going to be challenges that anybody going to the surface of the moon or Mars or an asteroid is going to have to face. I
1: know we were talking about... Go ahead.
0: The worst of human nature will come out on the frontier homestead. But by the same token, those very qualities of the worst in us, the Mm -hmm. determination, the drive, the possessiveness, the... um, instincts that make us a powerful species will come out on the frontier again. And it, we need to cultivate those to a point so that people of that kind of caliber can use the raw instinct and the raw determination and the sheer emotional drive to make it happen on that frontier. If we continue to try and push engineers and and astronauts to do the work that homesteaders should be doing, they're going up assuming they've got the resources to handle most, if not all, problems they're going to face. And that just isn't true. You're shortchanging those engineers and astronauts.
1: Well, that brings upon, uh, we're talking about mining. Uh, So, you know, if you think about homesteading, you think about the old west, and then then you think, okay, what started a lot of these, Small towns in well, let's look at Arizona. Arizona has a lot of small towns that were that have come up because of mining, uh, whether it was gold rush or whether it was coal. Uh, they had to do with mining. Well, let's, and, and
0: let's actually clarify that. If we if we look at the history of small towns, a town is actually a collection of people with an interest where they um, they exchange something for commerce. Uh, Some guy comes in, and he's got wheat. He grew on his farm outside of town. Another guy comes in, he's got, um, say, uh, uh, iron ore he mined out in the hills. He comes in and and trades it to the blacksmith for work on his burrow that helps him transport this stuff. The farmer brings in food items that they trade. So the town is simply a point of commerce. Miners are just one aspect of that the miner brings in something that the town's, town needs. It can be gold for production of money or simply because people like the pretty shiny gold or it can be ores uh, such as iron or um, on, the, on the surface of the moon, they might be bringing in water ice. They could be bringing in hydrogen. They could be bringing in um, uh, an abundance of minerals that are available not only on the surface but beneath the surface of the moon.
1: Well, that's part of what i wanted to for your readers and your listeners to understand was when you're talking about monetizing the moon and having these mine you know these mining these mining these items are talking about water ice, why is that important, and why are these other minerals that they can mine there? how can that benefit them as well as uh you know back here on earth?
0: Again, if we look back a little bit at history and and how mining developed or at least augmented the development of towns, towns must have a, a point of commerce, a way that people can trade one thing for another so that they can all develop as a community. In order to develop a community, you have to have multiple skills available in multiple individuals. It's a dynamic growth. It's like an organism in and of itself. For an organism to actually begin growing, you have to have some, some core thing that it grows around. If we look at human history, 99 out of 100 times it was water. When water was available, whether it be a creek, a spring, a river, the junction of two rivers, you found a point where humans would gather because of the water. They come first to sa- satisfy their thirst. They come second because it becomes a meeting place. Once it becomes a meeting place, commerce begins, and you have the beginnings of trade. Once you have trade, now you've got a point of gathering where people come to trade. You have a bazaar, as it were, and from there you build a community. The, the challenge that we face with moving into the space frontier is we don't have the ability to stick a hundred people on the surface of the moon or on the surface of Mars in one shot. We just don't have the lift capability to do that and make them survive longer than three weeks. Not going to happen. Not in any. Not in my lifetime, at least. Right. So what we have to do is look at a different approach. Again, I keep talking about going back in history and looking at the lessons that are available there. We establish a beachhead with a small group of people who establish the ability to, A, mine under the surface of the moon where we can seal it up and create an atmosphere and work in a shirt sleeve environment and monitor and control that environment to our needs. B, work with the water ice. Again, water ice uh, appears to be a key. where There is water ice there is the potential for us to create a community around that without it it's another mining point and mining never happens near a town it just doesn't it's always 40 to 50 miles away and in a in a frontier location where it's space you've got to have some way to get your product in this case ore or ice to a marketplace where commerce can distribute it beyond that. Without commerce, there is no frontier. In the earliest days of the American frontier, it was beavers and skins. The miners followed and set up claims where they started developing ore out of the ground that created additional pressure for commerce. Settlers came, set up farms that offered the opportunity to get food in trade. Increasing the potential for
1: commerce. So you're talking about food. Uh, I know that you had talked about hydroponics and how that applies to the moon and the food that they got that they're going to be growing there. Obviously, they're going to be growing things that they need to survive there. That they're going to rely on themselves and not on whatever we're going to send them
0: Earth. Absolutely, and and in fact. No frontier society is going to survive if they have to constantly be resupplied from Earth. The sheer cost alone will bankrupt the operation in within a couple of years, probably less. Taxpayers in this country I know won 't support something like that for very long. All we have to do is look at the history of Apollo to note that taxpayers stopped supporting Apollo after the second or third landing. The interest in in astronauts going up and breaking rocks apart and bringing some home was akin to watching some child play in a sandbox. It just it no becomes boring very quickly. No longer interesting. There were no new findings that were getting out to the public quickly enough, nor was there anything exciting happening on the trips. So the public lost interest. The public loses interest. The, the politicians lose interest. The politicians lose interest. Well, there goes the money for the project. The same thing will repeat itself and happen again if the pressure is to simply put people up there and hope to resupply them because it will not work economically. I mean, our our, our national budget is pretty much shot to pieces now anyway. Right. There's no way they're going to engender any kind of support. One of the things that I talk about in the pamphlet that I allude to that I'll be talking about more detailed in, in the actual book is that We have to come up with a new way to fund and finance this whole operation. Interestingly enough, there is a model uh, that was used in the time of the Pilgrims and also to a certain degree uh, in in some very limited circumstances as the pioneers traveled west in the U.S. And that is that small companies were formed who invested funds for a specific group to go to the Americas, in the case of the Pilgrims, and they funded resupplies for a limited time, but it was understood, and this is the difference between today and, and NASA's programs. In, in the Pilgrim's time, it was understood that they were going there for the purpose of commerce. They were given six months to a year to build up supplies locally to maintain their own survival, to be able to continue to exist without resupply. That was the goal. Once they, they achieved that ability to, to support themselves in the new environment, then it was expected that they would then export back to England products that England would like to have and could then engender into commerce to create a two-way stream of, of funds. The moon is no different. People who go to the moon must go first to survive. And once they achieve a survival stasis, at that point, they can begin finding ways to create products that can then be shipped either to the ISS or down to earth and thus create the commerce that everybody talks about we really need to have. I think everybody understands that commerce is important, but I don't think that people understand that that you've got to have a survival beachhead before you can engender commerce.
1: So you're saying that you think that they will make enough food eventually to get here um, and to send off to the Earth?
0: I think that the technologies that we've developed in in the past few decades of um, hydroponics, and when we look at adding to hydroponics the idea of fish to create aquaponics where the fish feed the plants, and the plants in turn can be grown to feed the fish. There is a recycling, a a life cycle to this type of an arrangement that reduces the overall cost. In traditional farming, you invest in seeds, you invest in equipment to cut and, and harvest the crop, you invest in a lot of time and energy to prepare the ground for that crop. So there's a great deal of energy that goes into generating food for your marketplace. With aquaponics, this formula changes somewhat. It is the fish who provide the nutrients for the plants. If you add more plants into the mix, it's dynamic. And so different things change. If you add more fish, now you have to add more plants. But there's a, a buffer level between in it so that you can add a few more plants every now and again and not have to add more fish so it becomes a dynamic thing as such it has the potential to gradually increase its output without huge levels of investment it becomes an organism in and of itself that, that can with husbandry self-perpetuate it can reproduce It is at that point of reproduction of this aquaponic cell that there is the potential to grow more than you would use. At that point, then yes, you can begin sending food first probably to the ISS. The moon is a perfect location for a food production site to serve the ISS. It's also perfect to recycle much of the waste material on the ISS that they currently burn up in the atmosphere. We're talking uh, discrete metals, titanium, uh, platinum, and things that could be sent to the moon instead of burning up in the atmosphere. Those resources would be worth their weighting gold, to use a cliche, on the moon, and they could then be recycled in some way. Or reconstructed, maybe not recycled using industrial techniques, but perhaps um, reconstructed into usable elements, or perhaps even in its limited way, stockpiled until a large enough stockpile arises that they can then afford to bring industrial components up and then process the titanium, the platinum, or whatever you know discrete metals that they have at that point, and then generate new products. So. It's all about working with the life cycle. You start by producing food. Once you produce food, you produce more than you need. You produce more than you need, you now have a product you can sell to the ISS. The ISS would gladly get rid of their waste to anybody. So the food becomes a way to acquire that waste, assign value to it. You assign value to it, well, you assign value to something, you're trading something, that's commerce. Whoa! We've established commerce where there was none before, all well, because there's be the potential for water ice in the moon. I'm sorry, I didn't hear that. Uh,
1: I said, I said that's good. It was a good plan. Then, as far as uh, you know, monetizing it. Um, you were saying that that uh, that there's no grand scheme uh, on the order of a millennium project colonizing the the galaxy. Um, can you talk a little bit about that particular project compared to what what you're talking about?
0: The Millennium Project uh, was Dr. Savage's idea of what would we as a species need to accomplish in eight general steps to become a galactic civilization. The steps that he defined assumed that we as a species, we as a people, could come together and accomplish great things. Now, that in principle is true. When we as a people uh, come together and we work together towards a common goal, we invariably always accomplish that goal. One way or another, it gets done. The problem that we have is, is that as our society continues forward in time, uh, the, the dynamics of that society changes. Each new succeeding generation uh, faces new issues mostly because of the way the society itself changes. If we look at the difference between the 1950s and 60s and today, we have a generation focused on technology uh, as its way of life. In the 50s and 60s, we had a society focused on the interpersonal relationships that we existed in. Your neighbors talked with neighbors. You were aware of what was going on in your neighborhood. You helped each other on this, that, and the other. You borrowed tools. You returned them there were a lot of dynamics that are very, very different than they are today. As such, um, the challenge that Dr. Marshall's book presented or was presented with is that it did not factor in the potential for these kinds of changes. It assumed that the greatest of attributes that we as a species have, our drive, our sometimes willingness to cooperate, would overcome all other problems we face and allow us to make these great eight leaps to become a galactic civilization. My project differs from that by acknowledging that we are a selfish species first. We are selfish not only by design and that we must have food, air, and water to survive, and that throughout our history there have been times when we have fought over food, air, and water and dirt. Um, these are traits that are within us. We can either embrace them and continue forward on the path we're on or we can choose to recognize them and use them to look forward to achieving the grand scheme that Dr. Marshall suggests. Dr. Marshall's plan revolves around a multi- the first stage, the very first stage, being the construction of a, a large uh, eco-friendly, economically self-supporting and productive uh, source of food to feed the masses of the world. It's a wonderful idea, and people have flocked to it. Um, there are multiple websites, multiple blogs, multiple Facebook pages that do discuss this as, as a wonderful goal, and it is it is indeed admirable but we are no closer to achieving it today than we were when he wrote the book 20 years ago. The problem is not that we don't have the technology to, to apprise to many of these things. The problem is, is that we lack the traits and the personal focus. Perhaps it is that we do not have a leader who can galvanize people to that goal. John F. Kennedy was able to galvanize the American public to push forward the Apollo program. We have not seen another leader capable of galvanizing not just this nation, but the world, into pushing forward with Dr. Savage's suggestion of that first ocean-based colony-type project. I don't know if such a person, even if he did exist, could galvanize enough support to make that happen. But
1: um, perhaps that it does it is not gonna be just any one individual, that it would be a group of people like minded who have perhaps we're talking about new space. So well, become I mean, a part of all the, of the what needs to happen in order to get to move us into space like this.
0: I, I think that's true. That it, it will take more than one person. It will take more than just Uh, a a charismatic leader to galvanize uh, a large enough segment of the population. But it's also going to take economic conditions that are going to favor that, that are going to favor the ability to gain the large-scale monetary investment, to gain access to uh, resources, equipment, uh, real estate, to be able to circumvent or, or to embrace legal challenges that are going to exist. Do I think it's possible to do that? I do. I absolutely believe that it is possible. Do I think it is probable that a a single project could achieve that kind of progress? No, I don't. Because I believe that human nature will trip them up multiple places. I think that a large grand scheme like Dr. Savage's is ahead of its time. It fails from the premise that it does not factor in human nature being self-servient. Dr. Savage's dream, while wonderful, while truly a beautiful thing to aspire to, and while I do think it could be done, it would eventually begin to break down the same way that the Biosphere Project broke down in Arizona. The scheme was so grand They did not follow the scientific method in creating incremental models to solve some of the problems before they said, oh, we can take this 2 chamber thing that NASA did in the 80s and we can scale it up to a six-man project with this huge setup that is based on this big concrete pool that they didn't discover until everything was closed was sucking out all the oxygen. They didn't take the incremental steps between the two-man thing to the... To the, the 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 six man city. There was Doesn't a city.
1: stand the reason that obviously we're not going to have all the answers uh, before we even get up there. Like we didn't have all the answers for biosphere.
0: I think that's critical. I think it's absolutely critical.
1: That we they do have know the answers we, or have, that we don't that we don't have the answers.
0: Well, not only that, but there's something more basic that goes into it. Our species is a social species that has several distinct levels. The first level is the self. self Self-serving, survival mode. Um, The second level is that of the family unit. Now, we've seen in the past few decades that family unit undergoing changes, but it still revolves around adults and children and the perpetuation of the species. That's the purpose of the family unit, to perpetuate the species. From the family unit, we go up to community. And from community, we go to typically town or city and blah, blah, blah on up for that. If we're going to embrace a frontier, we have to look at history in how our species has approached every frontier in the past. You have individual explorers who go out and they solve one problem or one set of problems, and they show that you can survive. Then you have family units who go out and brave the frontier, and they take those lessons and they learn how to survive. It is not until you have multiple family units in place that you can build a working economy. In other words, to construct a town. If we try to approach the frontier of space with anything different than this proven track record, we will fail. History has shown this time and time again. Every civilization starts with a few pathfinders. Family units set up farms after the pathfinders. Cities sprout up near the farms after the families. That's the way it happens. That's how our human nature encourages such progress.
1: Okay, so it's not really going to happen over tonight, obviously. Uh, it didn't happen back when we were settlers of the old west and it's going to take time to build up now. You're talking well, about, your cult-
0: about your culture. Your- let's 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 take a look at that time strain for just a moment. When when the first people arrived, I mean we know that Columbus arrived on the American continents in fourteen ninety two. We then know that the pilgrims didn't arrive till a couple hundred years later. We also know that it was another what, uh really, 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 really 14 to 16, it was another 100 to 150 years between the American colonies established a new nation. Yes, it takes time, but now if we look at what we've done as a species, it was less than 100 years before they filled up the eastern seaboard. It was yeah. less than 50 years after the cities were established on the eastern side. It was another less than 50 years when they pushed out west. So... We push into new frontiers quickly, and with the technology that we learn, we learn to push farther and faster. Do I think we can establish a town on the moon in less than ten years? Not likely. Do I think we could get some homesteads up there in the next ten years? Absolutely.
1: Well, you were talking about a process of twelve steps. Can you briefly go over each step with us that way, and and what part, how a man could be a part of that?
0: Sure. Um
1: <laughs> you grab your...
0: the All right, let me get my notes out here. All right. Caught me by surprise there. Homesteading space. Again, take its lessons from history. That's the first thing. Okay. So if we're going to, to homestead space, we need to understand who the players are first. And it, it's not enough for us to just say that, well, okay, we're going to have rocket companies and we're going to have people willing to go. Um, it's only been recently that uh, articles and a grassroots uh, interest in people going to space on a one-way trip has arisen. So let's 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 look at some of the players. The idea of gathering the players is coordinating the efforts of the businesses that are building e- building commerce here on Earth to prepare for moving into space. Uh, some of those players are people have been in the news, SpaceX, which is building uh, the rockets. We have uh, Bigelow Aerospace is building habitats. They're trying to put up a space station. The next few years, Space Adventures is already offering tours that can take you all the way around the moon and back. Go figure. Um, we've also got um, Virgin Galactic, which is building tourists as well as uh, tourist travel to suborbit and back. And then there is uh, also uh, XCOR Aerospace, which is following uh, or a companion company working with um, working in the same area as Virgin Galactic, building tourist travel. The second step is to define reachable goals. And the goals basically parallel uh, these 12 steps. We gather the players and build partnerships that foster the, 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 the parallel what I talked about in the investment companies that existed both in the time prior to the pilgrims and in the times of the westward migration in the U.S., we then have to define the goals that we can take with us. There were several books published in the American West just prior to the big migration that, and, and during the early years that talked about what do you need to take with you to survive. You in the current environment with NASA, we don't have anything like that. There's nothing that says what would it take you to survive on the moon other than we all know, well, you've got to have air, you've got to have food, and you've got to have water and we have many different wonderful artist renderings of what habitats might, might look like, but I don't know that anybody's taken the effort to define what the minimum requirements would be. Once you've got there, could you build it, or would you have to take it with you? Do you have to always take a tin can with you? And I'm not so sure that you do. In establishing an organization as the third step, you're looking at building an organization that fosters cooperation between the private groups the government players, which would, of course, be NASA, um, Air Traffic Control System, and different things like that, plus international organizations that would need to be tied into this homesteading group, whatever it would happen to be. Then you've got to generate funding in step number four. Now, generating funding means it has a problem, because, number one, we're talking multi-billions of dollars here. In fact, potentially... Um, $100 billion just to get the first trip to the moon. You don't, right now, we only know that tax dollars are the only way to raise that kind of money. Well, that's not necessarily true. Has anybody looked at the dollars raised by lotteries every week? I mean, we're talking hundreds of millions of dollars that are raked in by little guys buying tickets because they want a piece of the action. This represents...
1: They're funding roads with that,
0: you know. And they're funding roads, they're funding schools, they're funding a lot of stuff with the money coming out of these lotteries. But the point I'm trying to get at is is they're playing, they're using human nature to do this. Humans are basically greedy. We're constantly looking for something for nothing or something for cheap alternatives. And because they can see people do win the lottery once in a while and do become millionaires, even if they're stupid and they spend it all too quickly, um, it does work. You can win the money even if it is a big gamble. So generating funding doesn't necessarily have to be in the ways we're traditionally used to. People of like mind could generate a buck or two or ten bucks a piece. Uh, We have advocacy groups as nonprofit organizations who have been around for 20 years, since since Apollo and and some of them before Apollo, that draw their funding through contributions to their organization, and many of them, like the National Space Society, are able to fund experiments that do generate in real science that are really profound experiences. Once and once we've got some idea of how we're going to get funding, then we've got to move to engage the media. And by engaging the media, I'm not just talking about putting the news out there of what people are doing. What I'm talking about is what happened in July of 1969 when the media broadcast the landing of Apollo. When they did that, the media, by engaging with the information of Apollo, they engaged the public and the public became involved. This is what has to happen next, because when you engage the media, you engage the public. When you engage the public and you engage the media, you open up to item number six, which is merchandising. We all know about the classic example is McDonald's gets to use the toys that that are licensed for manufacture from, say, as an example, Toy Story the movie. And we all know that the new little cars on the new Toy Story movie are going to come out soon in either McDonald's or Burger King. And the amount of revenue that those generate is huge. Some of us may remember the articles that talked about the merchandising engine that was launched when George Lucas released his second film in the Star Wars trilogy. It became a huge deal. Once merchandising number six comes into play, we then have to look at team mission training. This is the next step. You build an infrastructure of your organization that handles all of these background things. Now you've got to build your team training. You've got to select a team, but there's something else that has to involve here. In engaging the public through engaging the media back in step five, we're now at a position where we can engage the public by making them a part of the training process. The reality shows that go do everything from uh, uh, making over somebody's house yeah. to I saw an ad the other night for a show that takes you and puts you beside what looked like soldiers training for combat. Yeah. People, want, people are looking for ways to even vicariously participate in the real physical life-and-death challenges of life. We live in a computerized world where, where so much of what we do is controlled by the computer, the phone, the car. We are protected in our air-conditioned environments going from home to work, and we do not face the visceral challenges that pioneers used to. When you look at space opera like Star Wars, these people face visceral challenges and, and, and things. And so when we when we look at the team training process, it can't be something that happens behind closed doors. The public needs to be involved, not just in the launch and the landing, but they need to be involved in the selection, in the training of these people who go on the first handful of Homestead launches. The next thing, the item number eight, comes to component launches. And component launches, when I refer to this, I'm referring to things that are uh, off-the-shelf, where we do not design them from scratch, and so we reduce costs, but more importantly, become reusable. And most of the commercial space program, what is commonly called new space, is moving in this direction. Business demands that a part has to be used for either more than one thing, or it has to be able to be used for the same thing more than once, increasing the return on investment. Number nine is lunar transit has to be a money-making operation. Getting You've got three days there of preparing to land on the surface of the moon. You can't just be sitting there reading books or make it a, a, a pleasant journey for, for astronaut homesteaders. These people need to be earning their keep. They need to be making money. These can include everything for paying commercial customers who want uh, uh, experiments that are done in the the true weightless space between the Earth and the Moon. It might be radiation experiments. It could be drug experiments. It could also be advertising on the surface of the craft that is made available when we do Internet broadcasts and blogs and things like this for the media that the team is doing during the course of the transit. Item number 10 is the habitat. The habitat has to be a home. It can't be a base. If we look at the word usage, when NASA talks about bases, they're talking about something, they're going to send an astronaut up, they're going to set it up, then the astronaut comes home. Then six months later, they're going to send another team of astronauts up to do some things, and then they're going to come home. That's a base. You go to visit. A home is a place you go. It's a one-way trip. You live. It's it's the homestead farm where you figure out, you solve the problems to live long and prosper. Item 11 is to construct a regenerative biome organism. A regenerative biome organism is the idea of treating your home like a creature, a life form in and of itself. You bring together components in the biome that cooperate amongst themselves to ensure long-term survival. The fish feed the plants plants feed the fish. The plants filter the water. You add bees into the mix, now you can broaden the number of plants you can grow in the aquacronic system. If you add worms and composting from your food waste, now you can create soil that you can now plant uh, plant uh, soil-based plants such as tomatoes and potatoes that grow better in a soil media. If you then add things like bamboo, you can now grow your own building materials. If you then take and, and add chickens, chickens will add additional components in their biological waste to the water that have add additional stuff for the plants. Now you can again broaden your your food sources by adding not only the eggs that the chickens are going to bear, but also by adding the occasional chicken meal to the homesteaders. We've gone from astronauts who must eat Processed meats and vegetables to now a farm where you have a variety of meals from fish, vegetables to um, sprouts to to now chickens, and we can add additional creatures as the biome continues to grow. Husbanding the fish generates more fish. Husbanding the plants, learning to to capture the seeds, allows you to continue the development of the plants. Item twelve generate basic exports for economic growth and development. If we do not export, we become a static organism that goes nowhere. It will wither and die in its own overpopulated cell. So one of the first things that has to happen is is we need to build the organism to such a degree that it hits a a point of critical mass, as it were. At that critical mass, it can begin producing exports because it's now producing more than it's to can produce more than it needs. At this point, it then creates a relationship with the ISS. I'm guessing that once you get, say, three homesteads up there, in that range between two and three, you have the potential to create more than those three groups of four people would require and have enough to produce enough food perhaps by that time to feed the ISS. Now, that would, based on what I've looked at, at teams of four going up in three trips, you're talking three teams of perhaps, based on the way NASA does things, three launches per in order to get all the equipment up into orbit, and then sending them out. But there are some interesting variations that we can do on this to reduce um, the launches after the first one. The first one's got to have everything up there. But once you get the first set up there, you're gonna establish a space station in lunar orbit, even if it is just a small capsule. You're gonna establish your first habitat on the surface of the moon. Once you do that, you now have a waypoint for the next crew to come to in lunar orbit. Their lunar transit capsule attaches to the first one. You now have double the space in lunar orbit. You have the makings of the beginning of a space station. These people land on the surface of the moon, they bring their resources to bear with the first team. You're going to grow, and we know through history that the sum of the parts is always greater than the whole. So they're going to add their uniqueness and their additional resources and buffer the teams to create this beginning, this frontier, this foundation upon which we can, within a year or two, begin hauling up industrial equipment and look at industrial level mining. At the end of, say, a year of industrial operations, we can then now look at at additional industry and things that can produce more uh, products and services and probably begin, uh, within a few years, we could have the resources on the surface of the moon to begin constructing the foundation to going to Mars. It makes a lot more sense to go small steps than it does to try and take the traditional NASA approach, which is a one-shot deal, billions and hundreds of billions of dollars to design and develop a ship that costs 2 to $10 billion to launch, that goes on a one-way trip to the Mars and back. It just seems to okay. make more sense to treat it like a frontier.
1: Sounds really good. Um I'm giving everybody the phone number again. I did drop off for a minute. came right back. Um, our guest call number is 714-242-5145. Is 714-242-5145. Or you can go on Blog Talk Radio and find KWOD and see the program and listen to it as, is, as we're finishing up here. We have about five minutes left, and... I wanted to let everybody know that you have websites and uh, obviously you're on Facebook and I did drop that in there. Uh, you're at Facebook slash DJ Mitzelplick. Would you like to spell that out for us, Don?
0: D is in Don, J is Jacques, my initials, Mitzelplick. Old super fan, Superman fans may re- remember that name um, at Yahoo.com, M I. T Z L P L I C K.
1: Also you can find Don's uh work and his books from his publisher, directly from his publisher with free shipping at A Z, like in Arizona, publishing services dot com slash bookstore dot PHP or just go A Z publishing dot com and find the bookstore. He has two books and on that. actually saw all three of them. He's also got the booklet. And, on that of course, that's on home setting space. He also can be found uh, on his Facebook, obviously. And then he also has a website, DJ, and that would be, D, obviously, is it Donald?
0: It's donaldjacques.com.
1: So no, that's no, J-A-C-Q-U-E-S.
0: Correct. The French spelling and pronunciation.
1: And what can they find on your website?
0: On my website, I have multiple projects. I'm a man of many interests. Um, for those of you interested in, in space and, and so forth, there are there are multiple blogs. I have many entries in there that talk about some of the things that we are likely to face.
1: So some of the things that you have in your book list and some things you're going to be having in your book. Um, you also have another lunar settlement, I believe.
0: Yes, I've I've established a website for um, the homestead project itself, uh, LunarSettlement.com, where I'm going to be focusing all of my space information and efforts there. As I continue development on the aquaponics, uh, modular aquaponics unit, on telepresence, um, demonstrator project, as well as a cylindrical garden project that uses... uh, light and aquaponics in a much more efficient manner. Uh, these are just some of the projects that we're working on to move forward with the idea of preparing for homesteading the moon.
1: That's terrific. I know that you're also part of the Moon Society group, Local Infanties. Correct.
0: Yeah, yeah and in fact, we, just, uh, we were just able to uh, reacquire our domain name, and we got our Moon Society website up at ms org. Invite everybody to take a look at that. Uh, our activities, our calendar, location, for anybody in the Phoenix Metropolitan Area, come wow. and join us on the third Saturday of every month. We'd love to have you. A lot of conversation on a lot of topics while we're there.
1: That's awesome. Um, I think that we covered a lot of a lot of, uh, ground, so to speak, here. And one ma- major question at the end, of course, is how can we buy a ticket? That
0: the <laughs> well, I do know that Space Adventures is working on such. Um, but I think the price is a bit steep. Uh do Google Space Adventures, take a look at what they're doing. They're they're really moving forward with a lot of great ideas. Uh Virgin Galactic is the next best thing, although again the tickets are pricey. They're looking at two hundred thousand dollars per trip. It's a fifteen minute ride, but oh what a ride I can imagine. The homestead project has the potential to become a new a new option, but right now it's it's an idea. It's based on the book and the pamphlet, and we're still fleshing out some of the details.
1: Well, it would definitely be interesting to keep an ear out for uh, any work that you you're working on this project and see what happens. And uh, I would. Just- definitely be right front watching you. I
0: would would definitely invite the the listeners to take a look, and if they have interest in some of these areas and they want to get involved, um, email me, uh, Facebook message, whatever, let me know you'd like to be involved. We'll definitely, we can use all the hands we can get. And one of the things that some of what we're developing in these projects is the idea that the individuals can use these technologies here on Earth. There's no reason you can't use aquaponics to grow your own food at home. There's no reason you can't use telepresence to do all sorts of things that we can't today. I mean, the quadricopter, you can go Google that. Google that and have some fun.
1: <laughs> well, let's not get you on a whole nother subject because you're down 45 seconds here. Uh, so I uh, obviously get you involved. Uh, if you need you're I invite people to come and talk to you on Facebook, come and talk to you on your website. Uh, you know, get involved, blog you, you're open to, for people to ask you questions, and that's the important part. It's called dialogue, and it's an exchange of free information and, and free ideas, and I think that's a wonderful place to be.
0: Absolutely, and without the open and challenging discourse that can be had, we will not make progress.
1: Well, well, thank you, Don, and we'll be back again next week and talk some more about the subject. Thank you. you. Appreciate the time. K Wad Radio signing out for the day, and have a great Saturday.